Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. We know, Courtney, my father, your grandfather, used to say, I don't care if it's only the dog catcher on the ballot. I'm going to vote, and you should too. Now, his point was voting is an important right that shouldn't be taken for granted. And we need to do our civic duty at every election that's being held, regardless of what's being voted on. Now, of course, since voting is such an important right, history has shown Black African-Americans have faced systemic racism aimed at preventing them from voting. And the means of prevention range from intimidation, subterfuge, and outright murder and massacres. It's not a euphemism to say our ancestors died for the right to vote because they were literally killed when they tried to exercise that right. Well, since you mentioned dying for that right, Aunt Carol, this is a good time to remind our listeners this is the fourth in our series on massacres of Black African Americans throughout history. This episode is all about massacres that happened when people tried to vote. Well, Courtney, thanks for that reminder. 2021, you know, marks the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. So a lot of attention has been focused on that horrific incident. But most people don't realize or know that there have been hundreds of instances in which Black African Americans have been massacred for various reasons, ranging from jealousy, land theft, opposition to integrating housing and schools, and as we'll talk about today, whenever Black African Americans attempted to vote. So let's talk about voting. As you know, after the Civil War, the 14th and 15th Amendments became the linchpins for Black African American suffrage in this country. You're right, Aunt Carol. The, fir- the 14th Amendment, ratified in 1868, gave African Americans African uh, African Americans equal protection under the law. However, it wasn't until the 15th Amendment, ratified in 1870, that the states were prohibited from disenfranchising voters on the account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, aka slavery. That's right. Your knowledge of those amendments is on point, my dear niece. Now, the 15th Amendment, however, did not provide automatic voting rights for African Americans. Congress did not provide enforcement for the 15th Amendment immediately. And get this, Tennessee was the last state to formally ratify the amendment in 1997. Now, 
even though the 15th Amendment supposedly enfranchised Black African-Americans, systemic racism in the form of Black codes, Jim Crow laws, mass incarceration, literacy tests, and various other forms of intimidation were used to prevent them from voting. Now, remember, our definition of systemic racism is it's that nebulous, unseen web of systems of power that interweave through patterns and procedures and practices and policies uh, within social institutions, and they consistently penalize and disadvantage and exploit individuals who are members of non-white ethnic racial groups. So we're talking about Black African-Americans not being treated fairly, basically. Now, the most extreme case of extreme of uh, systemic racism as it relates to voting came in the threat of massacres. And I believe you have a story to illustrate the brutal violence Black African-Americans who dared to vote faced. And I'm looking forward. Well, actually, I'm not looking forward to it, but I'm ready to hear the story. Well, and Carol, you're right. But now the, even the even the most of us who have the smallest bit of knowledge about how politics and elections work understand the basics. If a person is elected to public office fairly, unless they've done something criminal or acted out against the government, they will keep their position in office until the next election, uh, unless they do something, of course, during their tenure that is criminal or against the government as well. So despite how we feel about a certain person who's in elected office or their views, you can't just say, hey, you can't work here anymore get out just because of reasons. But in July of 1886, that's exactly what the Democratic members or the Democratic Party members uh, did with the help of a few white Republicans in the Georgia State Legislature. Uh, they did that to 33 newly elected African-American members who earned their spot in that governing body. They simply just kicked them out and they used state law to do it. Oh, well, I'm really intrigued now. Uh, and Georgia, once again, it seems like Georgia is always in the news when it has something to do with elections. So tell us, how did those 33 duly elected officials get kicked out? Well, they were called the original 33, and these Republicans were some of the first African-Americans elected to public office of any kind after the Civil War. And when you think about it, it's a very exceptional step because only a year before, most of them were enslaved, not even considered a full person in the United States. However, the historical magnitude of going from slave to state legislator was not celebrated by everyone and that everyone was a specific group of some Republican white uh, state legislature members and mostly the Democratic Party. So we have to remember we're in our time machine back when the Democratic Party in the South pushed those racist ideas. They were the slaveholders. They were the Klan members at that time. And the Republicans were the party of the newly freed African-Americans and uh, white people who were a part of radical reconstruction. So just remember that so our listeners don't get confused. That's important to remember, yes, because if we're talking about those two parties today, 
it's really a different construct. So thanks for clearing that up. Uh, but the message was very clear from the Democrats in Georgia. They wanted the original 33 to know that African-Americans were not now, nor would they ever be welcomed in Georgia politics. So let's begin at the end. And by the end, I mean the end of the Civil War. For the Southern states that seceded and created the Confederacy to be readmitted as a state into the, the Union, the United States, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment, which we already discussed, that gave African-American citizenship and equal protection under the law. And like we previously stated, that should have been enough to protect and make sure that African-American men at the time would be allowed to vote and run for political office. Now, this did not sit well with the Democratic majority in Georgia. Of course, they ratified the 14th Amendment because they wanted to go back into the Union. And at the time, they wanted to get rid of military occupation. So it's like when your mom says, you just you better say I'm sorry to your brother and sister. So and so you can get off a of punishment. You say it, you might not mean it, but you don't don't want to stay on punishment so you say that I'm sorry no okay, so, I get that so they were they were reluctantly accepting the 14th amendment very much with their fingers crossed behind their back hmm. now the thing about the state legislature the state of Georgia itself even though they said they ratified the 14th amendment they did not recognize African Americans as citizens of the state of Georgia and according to Georgia state law, to hold political office in the state of Georgia, you must be a citizen of the state of Georgia. Okay, so let me get this right. These Black African Americans were citizens of the United States, yes. but they were not citizens of the state of Georgia. Exactly. So when the uh, when the state legislator assembled on September 3rd, 1868, they just simply told the original 33, uh, you can't work here. You, you don't hold office here because you're not citizens of the state of Georgia. Ooh, well, <laughs> this was not a man without a country, but this was a man without a state. Okay. 33 men without a state. Now, this was not going to be taken lightly. The original 33, as well as the white Republicans who supported them, quickly began to put plans together and plans in place to get these men back where they belonged in political office. So the decision was made to rally um, just everyone around the state and the county and get the people out to vote, that there will be a march and a rally where uh, politicians and influential people in the surrounding counties could show strength in numbers, give speeches, um, and show people that they were not going to go quietly and what the state legislature was doing, legislature was doing was not fair. Now the plan was to leave from Albany, Georgia and march the 25 miles to a city by the name of Camilla, Georgia, picking up people along the way. Once they got to the Camilla Town Square in front of the courthouse, 
Southwest Georgia Representative Philip Joyner, who was one of the African-American lawmakers who was ousted from office, would give a speech, as well as John Murphy, a white Republican candidate for elector. William Pierce, a white uh, Republican congressional candidate, would give a speech. And Francis Putney, a white Republican landowner from up north who was lending his support to reconstruction and the African-American cause, they would all be there to show support and give speeches at the rally. So this is a pretty, uh, it, it's obviously, it's a biracial group of people and obviously people who uh, were important in the community and in the state. So these were just not your regular off the corner guys. These were movers oh, and no. shakers. They were movers, they were shakers, they were landowners, they were other prominent African-Americans. But what I also learned in my research is as they collected people, it was everyday citizens, Um, it was everyday African-American citizens who, even though a year out of the Civil War were politically minded, wanting to vote, knew the issues and knew what was going on was not right. Mm, okay, so we have quite a collection of, of influential folks here. Now, on September 19th, 1868, the, the procession began as scheduled and the march continued. And like the leaders of the rally hoped, people began to join in. It was a bandwagon. Literally, they had a wagon that had a band. So the music was playing and people were walking and people could see these groups, both men, women, white and black were marching together towards Camilla. Now, back in those days, it was very normal for men and some women to carry a shotgun with them as they traveled for protection. But unfortunately, the men in this march decided, you know what, let's not be a threat. Let's not make the people of Camilla afraid. We're not going to bring our guns. And those who did have guns either loaded them with birdshot or didn't load them at all. Okay, so they were trying to show their peaceful nature of this march. Yeah, a peaceful assembly to talk about the issues. Now, as the procession got closer to the town of Camilla, the excited group of people, uh, politicians and supporters were stopped in the road by a gentleman on a horse carrying a shotgun and giving an and he gave an ominous warning the man who identified himself and has in history is documented as john johns proclaimed by god i'm a courier on this road and you can't go into camilla with that music but you can go in as you please you'll get hurt anyhow hmm, okay so no music <laughs> you're gonna get hurt <laughs> They were next met in the road by Sheriff Mumford S. Poor and the Citizens Committee who told John Murphy, who was one of the, the white supporters, I don't think you've got a right to come to Camilla with an army of men to take the place. Now, John Murphy quickly explained to the sheriff that there was no violence. He was there to give a speech that day in Camilla and the group had a constitutional right to assemble. And with that, the group pushed onward into the town of Camilla, not knowing what awaited them on the other side. Oh boy. Well, I'll tell you, Courtney, John Murphy certainly had a lot of nerve to tell the sheriff he planned to give his speech, especially giving the warnings that Courier and, and the sheriff himself issued. So let's take a break and then we're gonna come back and hear what happens to this procession of politicians, influential people, general folks and public supporters 
when they get to Camilla. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry?, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? See you there. All righty, Courtney, we're back. And when we left off, things sounded a little ominous for John Murphy and his fellow marchers. So what happened next? Well, when we left off, our procession of voters and their band wagon followed the Republican candidates and influential people into the town of Camilla. They were upset at the removal of 33 African-American officials who, though, although had been elected to the Georgia state legislator, had been removed from their post by a weird twist of the law uh, pushed on them by the Democratic majority. Now, the group had been stopped by a so-called courier in the road, and history does not confirm that John Johns had any kind of official title, as except for what he announced. But he, they were also stopped by the sheriff and the citizens committee, a.k.a. the Klan. That's another name for local citizens committees. Oh, yes, that euphemism, <laughs> the uh, citizens committee with the white hoods. OK, pretty much. But they marched on, and when they finally got to town, they saw a very weird sight. The normal bustling town of Camilla was very quiet, but there were men standing in the doorways of buildings and millering around in an odd fashion. Now, William Pierce and Francis Putney, one of the original 33 who had been ousted from his position, got out of the wagon along with John Murphy and others who were to give speeches and walked to the courthouse square. Soon the bandwagon with the music and some other people who had got in because they were tired of walking followed as well. Then the man who originally stopped in the road, John Johns, pointed his gun into the wagon itself and fired directly. Oh no. Oh my gosh. What happened? He fired into the wagon where people were? where people were and shot someone directly in the head. Mm. Immediately, the men who were standing inside the doorways of the stores and other buildings started to fire into the crowd and the bandwagon. It was an ambush. As the men fired, people ran only to be hunted down into the next town in the, in the next counties over weeks. It was pure carnage. But you don't have to take my word for it, like the great LeVar Burton would say on Reading Rainbow. You don't have to take my word for it. The Georgia Freedmen's Bureau, who was at the time being overseen um, in that county where Camilla sat by Major O.H. Howard, kept immaculate records, which I was able to comb through depositions and affidavits and letters and telegrams that show Major Howard's genuine concern. So I'd like to read to you and our listeners the actual letter sent by Major Howard to his superiors in Atlanta about what happened in Camilla. The letter reads as follows. The affair in Camilla seems to have been a massacre. I enclose an accurate list of the killed and wounded as far as I know. A freedman who was a prisoner at Camilla 
but who escaped during the night states that he helped to remove one dead freed woman and four wounded freed men from the road within a hundred yards of the courthouse. The white men who were his captors boasted to newcomers who came newcomers of 12 men they had killed in a pond near, doc, near Dr. Dasher's two miles from Camilla. Another freedman took refuge in the swamp where he laid concealed all night with four others near him. He heard all, all the earlier part of that night, the white men scouring the woods, shouting and cursing and shooting freedmen. The pursuers, he says, were accompanied by bloodhounds. He heard the cries and shrieks of other fugitives as they were shot and pulled down by the dogs. Two men near him, becoming frightened, endeavored to escape, and both were shot within his hearing. It was reported to me as late as 4 p.m. that up to eight o'clock to up to eight o'clock this morning, when my informant left, they were still pursuing freedmen with horses and dogs. There was an intense excitement in town all day. The town was filled with freedmen. They had swarmed my office by the hundreds and it was difficult to restrain them from proceeding in mass to Camilla. I have addressed them counseling for peace and order. I've told them that the offender shall be punished and that their lives should be protected, but I have no heart for my work. I felt no assurance that my promises would be fulfilled. The mayor has addressed them, as did some citizens, but the freed people scoffed at them and would not listen. And I had a whole burden to bear at this hour, midnight. All is quiet. But how long shall I have the heart to deceive these freedmen by false promises? And how long shall I be able to deceive them by such promises? I cannot say, but I imagine that it is not long when they have no confidence in my fair promises, what then? Dr. Rashenberg has returned from the Fisher and Flags Plantation nine miles from here, where he has been caring for the wounded all day. Can you not send an officer to assist in this investigation? I will tomorrow take affidavits of the wounded men and others and prepare an official report. Please instruct me and inform me what action will be taken, military or by civil authorities. Below is a list of the wounded and killed in the affair in Camilla. Twelve freedmen, names unknown, at Pond near Dashers, two miles from Camilla. Doc Polkis, freedman, shot dead. Peter Hines, freedman, shot in the leg, wrist, and neck. Unknown freedman shot through the bowels in the head and mortally wounded. James Ingram, freedman, killed, shot repeatedly while lying on the ground. W.M. Dasan, freedman, shot in the shoulder. Unknown freedman, shot in the thigh. Unknown freedman, shot in the knee and in the breast. Sam Dickerson, shot in the arm. Wesley Chatham, shot in the back. Freed woman holding her child shot dead. A.B. Collins, freedman, killed, shot repeatedly while lying on the ground. William Lindsley, freedman, head cut off by blow and club with a musket. Randolph, freedman, shot in the leg. Burl Johnson, freedman, shot in the shoulder. Squire Aker, freedman, shot in the shoulder. 
Ben Lumley, shot in the thigh and leg below the knee. Howard Brunts, Friedman, six shot gun wound, head, ear, shoulder, arm, elbow, and side dangerously. Handy Robinson, Friedman, shot in both legs. John Murphy, white, lacerated and contused, wound of the head, blow by musket barrel. W.M. Pierce, white, shot in the leg. Francis Putney, Friedman, shot in the shoulder. Unless ample protection is immediately afforded the Friedman, I must respectfully and earnestly request to be relieved from further duty in this bureau. Respectfully, O.H. Howard, Brevet Major, Subassistant Commissioner, Georgia Freedmen's Bureau. Whoa. That's all I can say to that is whoa. And then Carol, there is so much more I can share. The evidence is overwhelming. Uh, the Freedmen did descend onto the Freedmen's Bureau office and gave testimony after testimony after testimony asking for justice and help. So I'm sure that you and your listeners are hoping that someone got justice in this massacre. I, I would hope so. But you know what? After researching so many of these massacres, I don't have a lot of hope that that's the case. So what happened? Well, you'd be right. In the weeks following the massacre, violence just continued with the distinct purpose of scaring African-Americans away from the polls to reelect the original 33. People were beaten and warned that if they voted, they would be killed. And in counties where the intimidation tactics of violence didn't work, the Democrats just used fraud to flood the ballot box. Both of these tactics significantly reduced the Republican vote, and none of the original 33 ever returned back to the Georgia State Assembly. Even though they had been duly elected to those positions. Hmm. Well, in 1976, however, the Black Caucus of the Georgia Assembly honored the original 33 with a statue that depicts the rise of the African-American politicians, and it's on the grounds of the Georgia State Capitol, and it reads, expelled because of color. The monument was done by sculptor John Riddle and has the inscription of all 33 names of the original 33 on its base with the counties that they represented. But it wouldn't be until 1998, 130 years after the massacre in Camilla, that the city, the city of Camilla, Georgia, recognized that it happened at all. Well, Courtney, justice delayed is justice denied. And again, like the Tulsa massacre, recognizing the Camilla massacre 130 years afterwards. Important, yes. Should it have been done? Absolutely. But justice needed to have been served many, many, many decades before well, I, that. I will say this as a follow-up to our friend John Johns, the courier in the road. One of the men in the, the march did not forget to load his pistol that day. And as soon as he fired into that wagon, someone fired right back. Okay. John, went down. <laughs> John, John met his fate. Well, you know, the courier sometimes brings bad news and is the victim of it as well. Now, Courtney, as we've talked about it before, massacring Black African-Americans um, happened all, often throughout this country. And 
Black African-Americans who tried to vote, it was a common practice after the Civil War. And during our research on this topic, I found no less than 11 such massacres, mostly in Southern states, including Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Virginia, and Florida, to name a few, following the Civil War up through the early 20th century when massacres were being done. And these were only the massacres that were recorded. Others happened that went unreported. And you'll recall, we did episodes on voter suppression that included the Ocoee and the Colfax, Colfax massacres. But like I said, there were many others, all of which served to frighten, intimidate, and limit voting for Black African Americans. And in fact, when we go back and look at the civil rights era and the attempts of um, both African Black African Americans and whites who went south to register folks to vote, now knowing about these massacres, it helps you to understand how difficult it was and why it was so difficult. People probably uh, had memories of these massacres and knew that that violence, and it did happen, uh, even in the late, it, they weren't massacres, but those who tried to help register people to vote, they were killed. Now, there were so many uh, situations that were so brutal and so bloody, I decided not to describe more of them, as I sometimes do in these episodes. But I hope our listeners will take time to do their own research into these despicable events. Let's just say the story you just shared about the Camilla massacre is an example of the horrors inflicted just because people tried to vote. Um, now, of course, in addition to massacres during the 20th century and the height of the Jim Crow era, there were other means used to disenfranchise Black Amer African-Americans of their right to vote. Remember, we talked about this in our episode on uh, voter suppression. Poll taxes discouraged those who could not afford to pay from voting. And um, there were uh, those poll taxes disproportionately affected Black African-American voters since at that time, most of them lived in poverty. Um, remember this, poll taxes continued well into the 20th century. And as of 1964, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia still had poll taxes. Another uh, method for preventing the vote, literacy tests that was a way to stop people from participating in the vote. And uh, they often discriminated against Black African Americans simply because remember, Black African-Americans were not allowed to be educated well. And so literacy tests that included questions like in which document or writing is the Bill of Rights found or name two of the purposes of the U.S. Constitution, that's totally unfair. I think even educated people probably couldn't answer those questions. So how could formerly enslaved people or or a newly uh, freed individuals after the Civil War be able to answer these? Um, some testers even went so far as to ask potential voters how many bubbles were in a bar of soap. Oh, that's that one gets me every time because I'm like, well, you had do you know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Obviously not. But today, Ann Carol, the, the days of massacres and Jim Crow are way behind us. They're in our past. But the current news lets me know that voter suppression hasn't in, hasn't ended. It's just taken on a new form. You're right, Courtney. You're very right. As of June 21st, 17 states enacted 28 new laws that restrict access to the vote. 
uh, with some state legislators still in session, more laws are certainly going to follow. And these laws target early and in-person voting, voting accessibility, voting timeframes, and even mail-in balloting. Now, speaking of mail-in voting, that's an important option, Aunt Carol, for many voters. But I understand a lot of states have made it harder to do that. Yes, mail-in voting. In fact, it's not only important uh, for voters at large, but remember, a lot of military folks vote using the mail-in ballot. So my dear niece, get this, in 12 states, it's going to be more difficult for voters to mail uh, in their ballots. Six laws shorten the time frame for voters to request a mail-in ballot, including infamous Georgia, that's going to reduce the window by more than half. Five laws make it more difficult for voters to automatically receive their ballot or ballot application, either by making it harder to stay on absentee voting lists or by prohibiting officials from sending applications or ballots without the voter's affirmative request. Now, there are nine laws in eight states that make it more difficult for voters to deliver their mail mail ballots, including a law in Arkansas that makes the in-person ballot delivery deadline earlier, and six laws that restrict assistance to voters in returning their mail-in ballots. Also, there are four laws that limit the availability of mail ballot drop boxes. So you you can get a mail-in ballot, but there's no place for you to drop it. We've also seen three laws that impose stricter signature requirements, and there are some laws that have stricter or new voter ID laws for mail-in voting. Okay, so mail-in voting is under attack, but what about in-person voting, Carol? They can't attack that. (laughs) I wish you were right. Things don't look so great there either, Courtney. At least eight states have enacted 11 laws that make in-person voting more difficult. These three states have enacted laws that impose new or harsher voter ID requirements. And there are some laws that make faulty voter roll purges more likely, risking confusion. And in that confusion, there would be disenfranchisement when voters show up at the polls and their name isn't on the list and someone says, well, your name's not on the list, so you can't vote. Uh, Let's take a look at Montana. They've eliminated election day registration and moved up its registration deadline to the day before election day. Uh, Three states have limited the availability of polling places too. Uh, Montana, back in the the picture, they permitted more locations to qualify for reduced polling place hours. In other words, you you don't have uh, as long to be able to vote. Iowa also reduced its election day hours and shortened the early voting period, and they limited election officials' discretions to offer additional early voting locations. And once again, back to our state of Georgia, uh, they've reduced early voting in many counties by standardizing early voting days and hours. Wow, that's a lot of legislative firepower aimed at limiting voting rights. Now, we know that systemic racism can be woven into laws, but can it also be woven into policies? Are there any policies floating around now that seem to be aimed directly to prevent Black African Americans from voting? Yes, there are. Just like those laws uh, ultimately will help prevent 
Black African-American voters from voting, policies can be as powerful as laws when it comes to systemic racism. And there are quite a few laws that are in the works already enacted aimed at changing election policies in a way that undermine the voting process. Some of these new policies would uh, expand the powers of poll watchers. And, and remember, poll watchers can be uh, considered kind of intimidating. People that will have a chance to say, uh, you know, report you if you look like like a suspicious voter and so on. So uh, some of these policies expand their powers. Uh, some of them punish local election officials for technical mistakes. Uh, some of them will limit executive and local power regarding elections. And some of these policies are aimed at restricting or prohibiting the use of outside funding for election administration expenses. Finally, Four states have passed non-binding resolutions opposing the Federal For the People Act, and they are urging Congress to reject it. And the For the People Act is an act at the federal level that expands and, and protects voting rights. This all sounds pretty grim, Aunt Carol. Now, not as grim as the massacres that people face trying to vote, like we talked about earlier, but still pretty grim. Even if people aren't being killed trying to vote, it seems like the cornerstone of democracy, which is the right to vote, is the one that's about to be massacred. Yes, it sure does, Courtney. It sounds as if things are going downhill pretty fast. But now there is a silver lining. Despite the wave of voter suppression, and these this wave has really gained uh, a lot of momentum in 2021, some states have enacted legislation to make it easier for Americans to access the ballot box. These laws are focused on expanding early voting, making mail-in voting easier and improving accessibility for voters with disabilities. For example, Virginia has enacted nine expansive bills this session, uh, the most of any state. And that is surprising because remember, Virginia was at one time the seat of the Confederacy. Now, at least seven laws uh, have been passed that expand the availability of early voting. And that's in New Jersey and Kentucky, states that have codified in-person early voting. And Massachusetts extended early voting through June of this year. And get this, at least eight laws in six states make mail-in voting easier. That includes five laws in four states to expand mail-in ballot drop boxes and uh, locations, and five states uh, that codified procedures so that voters can learn of and can fix mistakes and defects in their mail-in ballots. You know, that's usually the reason a ballot gets thrown out uh, if there's a mistake. And so those states are making it easier for people to fix those. Now, there are six states that have enacted eight laws that seek to make voting more accessible for voters with disabilities. And I'm happy to say that Washington and New York restored voting rights to people with past convictions so that every American living in the community is eligible to vote. So um, it's, it's, we're seeing some you know, really dramatic things, dramatic changes happening in those more progressive states. And one thing I forgot to mention, two states have made voter registration easier for young voters. New York expanded automatic voter registration to include the State University of New York, while Virginia expanded pre-registration to 16-year-olds. 
Well, that's good. Good to hear that two states are actually and some more states are helping people vote as opposed to taking voting rights and accessibility away. Now, it looks like those states that we talk are talking about are ahead of the game. So good on them. And I hope other states follows. There's a meme going around on social media that says, if your vote didn't count, why are they making it so hard to do it? Our episode today makes that answer crystal clear for me, and I hope our listeners too. Your vote is powerful. Yep, Courtney. One person's vote does make a difference. And obviously, some states are trying to make it harder to exercise that valuable right. In fact, Stacey Abrams called the new voter suppression laws the new Jim Crow. And that's a very chilling observation. Accurate, but chilling. But as we bring this episode to a close, if any of our listeners want to find us online, check out our social media, look at past episodes because we've been referencing a lot of our older episodes in this series, go on over to our website, which is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.